Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Kiebert. Today's moment comes from the end of the Art of Fugue, so to speak. The heirs of the late Mr. Johann Sebastian Bach, the great composer, erstwhile royal Polish and electoral Saxon Kapellmeister and music director in Leipzig, have resolved to save from oblivion a work he left in manuscript and to issue it under the title Die Kunst der Fuge in 24 examples by Johann Sebastian Bach, Chapelmeister and music director in Leipzig, etc., etc., Because of a dearth of well-executed examples, the mystery of fugue has for some time been rather scantily maintained. Great masters have often guarded it jealously. And this continues this way. This is an excerpt from an advertisement, which is way longer than what I just read. And the advertisement was written by Bach's son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, who is one of his main promoters basically after his death and he helped basically to get this published last week we talked about the art of fugue this week we continue talking about this enigmatic piece of work which is mostly composed all on one central simple four note theme but constitutes basically the main example of how to do a fugue well so the art of fugue is a title that was given actually probably by Carl Philip Emanuel himself. Um, last week I kind of meant, indicated that, it, that Bach himself named it, and I'm not sure if that's known completely, but definitely was called that by the next generation. And that was probably started by Carl Philip Emanuel. Really, this explanation in this little advertisement that he wrote for this magazine gives us a lot of insight on the piece and on his father's purpose for writing it. But because it's an advertisement, it also delightfully has talks about how expensive it is to create this thing and then like how much it costs if you want to buy it and all this stuff. And so what I got this from is a book that we haven't referenced yet on this podcast, but it is a wonderful resource for Bach lovers, and that's the new Bach reader. Fairly recently published piece of work that basically is a compilation of all these letters and documents and sometimes it's like an order detailing box compensation of his or like you know like his job descriptions like the stuff that he owned that was cataloged after his death all kinds of interesting stuff stuff about his estate um, how much money he would make for for playing organ at funerals all that kind of stuff it's all in here The Art of Fugue is an unfinished piece of work. It's clearly unfinished. In the middle of one phrase, it simply trails off. We mentioned this a little bit last week, but Christian, at the beginning of last week's episode, you talked about good vibrations by the Beach Boys, right? Yep. And just how, what would that have been like? You know, the two of us are too young to know that. What? But some of our listeners aren't. Some of our listeners remember when that came out in the late 60s and were probably blown away by the soundscape of that piece of work. Theremin. 
yeah, there's a theremin in there famously. And, but it's not just that, it's this sort of like unusual for rock and roll, the sort of variations that are happening in the song and the different tempos and the different styles that, that switch off and things like that. There's a lot of complexity to the way that that stuff was produced, um, largely brainchilded by Brian Wilson, one of the members of the band who at that time had, they had just come out with their, one of their probably most important artistically albums, one of their later albums, Pet Sounds, beloved album by the Beach Boys. If you don't, if you're a person listening to this who doesn't think they like the Beach Boys, I implore you to listen to Pet Sounds. (laughs) It's a sonic masterpiece. It's almost symphonic and the the studio work is really interesting the way things are mixed is really interesting the orchestrational things are really interesting the instruments used are very interesting but it's all in the context of these like little two to three minute cutesy songs about love you know but it's not just that there's actually it's actually a little bit more a little bit more mature in its in its lyricism than some of their earlier stuff also but anyway i guess i just what i'm saying is i can't get enough of pet sounds but then that made me think, okay, then what was next? Well, what was next was Good Vibrations, which was supposed to be part of their next album. They never finished it. They never got around to finishing that next album, which was to be titled Smile. So Smile is an unfinished work. There are other things that they did after that, but that piece of work never never happened. What we got, the parts of it that we got, like Good Vibrations, are amazing. But it's always tantalizing to look at work that was unfinished to wonder what the finished work might be and there is no way to recapture what it was there is a performance of the mozart requiem which i like but which completes the the movements that mozart wrote but which adds a few new things in there like a new movement completely about it like there's an amen fugue that's added and even though it's like stylistically mozart i just can't help but you know have the burden of knowing that that's not him but it, mm-hmm. that it was written by a by someone who's basically alive today and there's no way to get an authentic sound when you don't live in the time period so that's why i think it's really interesting to go back to these letters and look at what Bach's sons, especially Carl Philip Emanuel, which he's the one that wrote that that text at the end of the final fugue where Bach's name appears in the music. I want to get into this a little more because we hinted at this last week. Bach's name, B-A-C-H, appears as a fugal subject entry in this music. The notes for the English speakers, the way the notes would be spelled are B-flat, A-C-B. So the ending of the final fugue that Bach never finished, well, since there have been a lot of composers who've tried their hand at finishing it, we have heard a bunch of different versions of this particular piece. But this one by the Netherlands Bach Society is particularly special to me because of the way they bring everything together at the close. What you're hearing now is the lead up to the moment where Bach's hand stops on the page. And here we go, and right here. That was it, that was the moment. It was hard to 
really understand to hear because the music just kept going. But right after that moment, the music stopped being b- written by J.S. Bach and started being written or reconstructed, you could say, by two of the members of the Netherlands Bach Society, Kies van Houten and Leo van Dusselaar. And this sounds pretty authentic. And that's because, well, these people know Bach really well, and they're scholars of it, and they're taking the fugal subject material from earlier in this particular fugue and writing out the ending in a logical way. Christian, you mentioned before that this kind of being Bach's final huge project was an inevitable piece of music. It needed to happen. It was, Bach was all about fugue. This was just like, if he, if he wouldn't have written this, nobody else could have written this. This was, the end, this was an end of life Bach thing. It's a good thing that he wrote it down, at least most of it. When you think about the things that Bach did that no one else could do, sometimes we say on this podcast and you hear people say that Bach is great and that he is one of the top composers. But um, sometimes I just think that it's more useful to think about the things that he could do that other people just objectively didn't have the skill set for. And we were listening to something recently, Alex, where we both remarked, how come no one else can also weave a canon of the chorale tune in two oboes as a background against the choral parts that, you know? Yeah, the answer, no, no one of his, of his era or today. Yeah, well, it was his particular skill set, and it's a little bit too absolute to say that nobody could ever do that. But this was his particular gift and passion, so it makes sense that he would. He would. Right, but Bach's technical skill is on pure display here and that's what makes this so interesting i think with those cantatas and with the vocal expression and and all that it's fantastic because bach his mind works so well in the pictorial sense of expressing these beautiful words but here you just get the stripped down complete technical skill of bach bach never met George Frederick Handel, but he held him in high esteem. But Handel, I think Handel's strengths are different than Bach as a composer, right, Christian? I mean, we, we say that Bach has this technical skill with fugue. Now, anybody in that era who was worth their salt could do a fugue. You know, Handel has done many. And some of them are even amazing, <laughs> I would say. Mm-hmm. But um, but Handel didn't care about the chorale tunes, really, right? So he doesn't include those in pretty much anything that he does. But arguably, Bach's music is a little bit more like practical in most senses than Handel's. And I think this, if you watch a good performance of Handel's Messiah, that you can do that on a, with a huge orchestra and it works just fine. The arias can be smaller because they need to be because of solo voices and solo instruments. But the choruses work with a huge orchestra. But then when we look at Bach, when we look at even the most lavish Bach, like Mass in B minor and things like that, you need you need to not have too large of a choir. The orchestra needs to be smaller, especially if you're using modern instruments that have a brighter sound than the Baroque instruments would have had. Yep. But all of this to say that this, this, the art of fugue, is simply free of any of those considerations. It's written down, some of it in two staves, some of it in four staves. It seems like it doesn't matter what instrument you play it on. Carl Philip Emanuel talks about the instrumentation of the Art of Fugue here when he's trying to sell it. I mean, wouldn't you want to use something practical if you were buying it? So he says, 
Since all the parts involved are singable throughout, and one is as strongly was worked out as the other, hmm. each part has been given its own system with the appropriate clef in score. What special understanding, however, one can attain of the art of composition by studying scores, both with respect to harmony and melody, those who have been fortunate in proving themselves will demonstrate with their examples. Nevertheless, everything has at the same time been arranged for use at the harpsichord or organ. So he's admitting here that this is like an intellectual exercise, but also practically you could sing these, or what he doesn't really say, but which is also still apparent, is that you could still you could play these on solo instruments with those clefs of the day, or you can just play it on a harpsichord or an organ. And back then it would have been expected that you could be able to do that by reading four different staves. Most keyboardists now would kind of scoff at that, although some re the really good ones have learned to do that, especially those who accompany choirs and need to play parts off of cho choral scores that have separate soprano, alto, tenor, and bass Although they staves. Although they would only know how to do it for modern clefs, which this That's is, true. isn't. <laughs> yeah, so that, actually I was going to get to that. So like reading old Bach scores, the hardest thing for me to do is to read the clefs. I mean, it's great when you're looking at the bass. The bass clef has stayed the same since it was in Bach's day. So now I can read the continual part and the bass singer part just fine. And then if I look at the treble clefs that are used for many of the instrument parts, like violin and stuff like that, that's great. He uses the alto clef for viola, I think, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering correctly. Uh, and I can read alto clef okay, although like most musicians who aren't violists, um, I get annoyed at alto clef. <laughs> Probably violists will tell me that they would get annoyed at treble clef, for example. But whatever, it's all just what you're used to, right? But the thing is, when you're reading these original scores by Bach, it's hard to read the soprano, alto, and tenor voice parts because they all have soprano, alto, and tenor clefs, right? And for me, I don't read a lot of tenor clef. Some cellists might read some. And like I said, alto clef I'm okay with, but the soprano clef is like almost never used now, right? Yeah. I So that one's hard to read. You just gotta have to transpose in your head. And But you know, back in the day here in Leipzig where this was being advertised by Bach's son, it wouldn't have been a problem at all. They would have not batted an eye at that. Also, Christian, you should know that this work will not be sold under 10 Reichs Reichsthaler. Reichs Reichsthaler? So uh, don't think you're going to get a better deal than that, Christian. That's Reichsthaler? How, that's right. That yeah. is how, that is the minimum price. Although if you subscribe... I only have nine. You on only me, have nine on, on you? me right now. Yeah, that's that okay? not gonna, no, that's not going to work. <sighs> Because as he says, since this work comprises 70 copper plates in folio, and thus was very costly to produce, it is offered by subscription. This will be valid from now until the Leipzig Michaelmas Fair and will be accepted in the principal bookstores of Germany upon the payment of five Reichsladers. Oh, five. After that time, oh. the work will not be sold under 10 You know, everything's just ah. becoming subscription-based nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And that is the problem with modern society. Oh, wait, it was happening in Leipzig in the 1750s. Oops. <laughs> in Douglas Hofstadter's book, Gerdel Escherbach, which is a deep, deep well that we have only drawn from a couple times. And Christian, you I don't think you finished it yet, have you? I haven't. I'm making my way through it. No, the, I mean, the, book. the computer programming parts and the logic languages are yeah, kind of dense. Yeah. But anyway, so I haven't even gotten to this part yet, but looking up things about the art of fugue, it talks about how he, uh, Hofstetter, of course, is fascinated with this, and he kind of cheekily connects it to Gödel's incompleteness theorem, like the fact that this fugue is not complete 
uh, he's connecting that to a mathematical concept, which is Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which is that you can, and I'm way simplifying this as a non-mathematician, but my understanding is that you can prove that there are things that you cannot know about mathematics. That's a very mm -hmm. simplified way of saying it, but it is provable that you can that you will never be able to find the answer to certain things, which in mathematics is a useful statement in the broader sense of philosophy and the world in general is kind of existentially terrifying. <laughs> but if it also kind of seems right though, it, well, yeah, it certainly does. Doesn't it? Cause anybody who knows anything about science knows that as soon as you start to learn, you dig deep in something, it opens up more questions. Like every time you answer something, more questions are opened up and there's a never ending tree of that. Hmm. And for something like the art of fugue, the fact that this remains unfinished is almost kind of delightfully perfect because there is no final piece of what fugue is. Like we, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fugues in Bach's output. And he could have just, if he would have lived another 50 years, he would have written hundreds and hundreds more. And every single one of them would have been amazing. So it doesn't matter that he didn't finish this one except that it also matters a lot that he died too young, but because then we would have gotten hundreds more. But uh, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, it doesn't, it's not like this was the last one he could ever write. It's not like there's a finite number. It's just a series of infinity. It's just that we never got to see the rest of it. It's like Gödel's incompleteness theorem. We could just never know. And now here is the ending of the reconstruction of Contrapunctus 14. If this introduction to the musical moment at the end of this setting of the Art of Fugue has inspired you to hear and see the rest of this wonderful arrangement, please see the link in the episode description. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also, please rate us. I think it's been a while since we've asked. Give us a good rating. We could use some more of those. Yeah, and when you do that, it helps people find the podcast. It, like, it boosts it for them. So Christian, what's next for A Moment of Bach Season 3, Episode 3? Near the beginning of our podcast seasons, I like to make a selection from Cantata 61, Nun kommt der Heidenheiland, one of my favorites, all-time, I don't know, top three favorite cantatas. And we've done two already. And now I have the finale, the short chorale, the Amen chorale at the end of that masterwork. Short and sweet. Until next time. Or I could say like this. In the spirit of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Until next time. And then not finish it. I'll Alex. see how cheesy it is when I do it. Alex died. <laughs> <laughs> While sitting at the podcast microphone recording this podcast, <laughs> the podcaster died. <laughs> <laughs>
upon the upon the termination of the script of the podcast episode nearing the completion of its of its subject, the podcast died. Oh no, the podcast died. 